I think a lot of people have been hoping for a kind of a reset of US-China relations, but the relationship has deteriorated so far that it's impossible to kind of go back to before Trump. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Hello, I'm Andy Gawthorpe, a historian and columnist, and I'm the host of America Explained. We've got a great episode coming up today, but first I'd like to tell you just a little bit about the show. America Explained is a new podcast. It's a family-run podcast, just like grandma and grandpa used to listen to. And that means we're starting out small, and we'd really benefit from your help as we try to grow the show. Please remember to subscribe to America Explained so you always see new episodes in your feed. There's also an America Explained Facebook page, where we post written commentary, and where we're building an international community of listeners. If you really want to help us grow, consider leaving us a 5-star review in iTunes or whichever podcast platform you use. This helps us find new listeners and it's a great way to grow the podcast. We'll be so grateful for this help. In the meantime, enjoy today's show and remember, you can always email us on producer at america-explained.com with any questions or comments. It's sometimes said that the US relationship with China is the most important bilateral relationship in the world. That's a big claim, but I think it's true. Between them, the two countries account for about 40% of world GDP and about the same share of global carbon emissions. One is a declining global superpower and the other an aspiring regional challenger. The economic aspects of the relationship have reshaped the global economy over the past 20 years and it looks increasingly like the diplomatic and security aspects might shape the whole world in the coming 20. In this episode, we're going to consider how that relationship has fared under President Donald Trump. As I record this, the course of the president's current illness and the outcome of the election in November are both unclear, but whatever happens, Trump's first term is nearly over, and that makes it an appropriate time to reflect. The past few years have seen a growing bipartisan consensus in the United States that a more hardline policy towards China is necessary, but outside of its trade war, the Trump administration has actually been very inconsistent in its application of pressure on Beijing. So what exactly has been driving its policy? Might we actually see harsher policies from a Biden administration? And what are the latest developments within China itself with implications for US policy? To discuss these questions, I'm joined by Xiaoshui Martin, a research fellow at the Klingendal Institute, a Dutch think tank. Prior to this position, Xiaoshui studied in both Taiwan and Hong Kong and worked at the Dutch Consulate General in Guangzhou. She was a great person to have this conversation with and gave me so many insights. I really hope you enjoy the interview. So hi, welcome to the show, Xiaoshui Martin. We're really glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. The first question that I wanted to ask you is just a general one about um, the, the main themes of US policy towards China under Trump. The Trump era has been so chaotic. You know, there's always so many things that are competing for our attention in the news. And I think the China relationship, you know, even though it's, it's, it's so important, it's, it's gone into the background a lot in, in news coverage. So people aren't necessarily aware of, of what's been going on. So I wondered if you could start just by telling us what are the main themes of U.S. policy towards China under Trump? So I think the overall arching theme is chaos, both uh, in how the Trump administration chooses to message its China policy to the outside world and both how it's formed within the Trump administration as well. 
We've seen so many uh, personal changes um, that the Trump administration's policy has been shifting quite a lot. One of the peculiarities of American foreign policy in the Trump era is that it's often seemed like the United States has two foreign policies at the same time. So there's the official US government position, and then there's whatever Donald Trump happens to be tweeting that day. And this can often get very confusing, even I think for the US government officials who are actually implementing policy. So is this an issue that we've seen arise in the US-China policy? Exactly. If you take, for example, the example of um, the Huawei ban that the Trump administration has been pushing for, um, you see that, for example, through the use of tweets from the Trump administration, it's quite unclear for US government officials to see how they should implement the policy that's actually being implemented, because the communication is via social media, via tweets, rather than clear internal uh, messaging that actually government officials weren't sure initially whether they should imply the ban or not. And running government by tweet is even more difficult when the person sending those tweets is very confused and incoherent in his own message. And we've really seen this from Trump. So on the one hand, he takes a very hard line on trade towards China. He's also engaged in very harsh rhetoric to do with the coronavirus at certain points this year. But he often seems to want to really compartmentalize trade, which is the main issue that he cares about from other aspects of the relationship. So we don't often hear Trump criticize China for its actions in the South China Sea or in Hong Kong or towards Taiwan or its stance on human rights. And Trump is always insisting that his personal relationship with Xi is, is very strong. You know, he wants to make out like they're BFFs. So the overall impression has just been of a very inconsistent policy from the president himself. And I wondered if you think that as the US relationship with China has deteriorated over these past few years, that Trump really missed an opportunity to fashion a more comprehensive policy towards China. Exactly. And his uh, overall administration's policy towards the region was only formed, I think, a few years ago, the Indo uh, Free and Open Indo-Pacific. But before that, it was just a bunch of um, uncombined messages that were sent without diplomatic com communication as well. So it was quite difficult for the Chinese side as well to interpret what was going on and what the Trump administration actually wanted, because there was so much flip-flopping that it's difficult to predict and difficult to keep relations stable. I think a lot of the problems with the current administration, at least, is that it's laying down these demands and it's um, uh, demanding a lot from China, but it's not really realistic in what it can actually achieve. The, the, she, the CCP is not going to step down or stop its practices in Xinjiang simply because the United States sold it so. So it's going to continue these practices. And what you see now is that the United States and China are clashing on more and more fronts of their relationship. One of these contentious fronts has been Beijing's policy towards Hong Kong and Taiwan. So these are two territories that Beijing considers in some way wayward. Taiwan is de facto an independent state. Hong Kong is a city, um, you know, attached to the mainland, but which has hitherto enjoyed substantial autonomy. And China has been tightening the screws on these two territories in various ways over the last couple of years. Maybe we can start by talking about Taiwan, which things have been happening there that I think have, have passed under the Western media radar to an extent, especially because we've been so focused on Hong Kong. But China has been really ramping up its coercive rhetoric against Taiwan 
threatening military action if Taiwan moves towards a formal declaration of independence. At the same time, Chinese military jets have been penetrating Taiwanese airspace repeatedly, actually just over the last couple of weeks as, as we record this podcast. So this obviously raises the question of, of what the US response should be. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the, the legal and the policy context of US policy towards Taiwan, and then also specifically how the Trump administration has responded to these recent actions. So first towards Taiwan, um, the United States is not an official ally of Taiwan. They changed diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to the People's Republic of China in 1979, um, but they still maintain relations with Taiwan under the Taiwan Relations Act. And in this, they, for example, sell uh, arms to Taiwan. They support it in the international fora and they do other, uh, they pursue other methods to support Taiwan in the international atmosphere. And under that, we see also under the Trump administration, quite a lot of new laws in which uh, the administration is formalizing this intent to cooperate more with Taiwan. For example, you have the, the Taipei Act in which the Trump administration um, is promising to, to organize more visits, official visits from uh, high level ministries to Taiwan. So let's shift our focus to Hong Kong, where there's been, you know, a very public power struggle unfolding between Beijing and um, a local protest movement over the last couple of years. Beijing initially attempted to force an extradition bill on Hong Kong, which was very unpopular in the city. This led to a huge protest movement. China's kind of tried to wait out this protest movement, it seems. And then they've recently forced a new national security law on Hong Kong, which seems to do a lot to really change the structure of government and the Hong Kong legal system. This has actually led the US to certify that it no longer considers Hong Kong to be autonomous from the mainland. I wondered if you could talk us through the the policy and kind of the legal background to this, and then also what this recent US move really means. So quite a while ago, in 1992, the U.S. government formed the Hong Kong Policy Act, in which uh, they maintained the right to treat Hong Kong as a separate legal territory within its domestic law from from mainland China. So this was uh, made in anticipation of the handover, which was happening in 1997, uh, in which Hong Kong was going back from uh, Great Britain to uh, the People's Republic of China. So ever since then, uh, Hong Kong has had quite a lot of special rights in U.S. governmental law. For example, now it's not being imposed uh, economic sanctions that the rest of the mainland, uh, mainland Chinese economy is being imposed. To. So we've seen um, the passing of the bill of the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, in which the U.S. government would impose sanctions on Hong Kong uh, authorities and Beijing authorities that would work against the autonomy of Hong Kong. And this was a response to what they saw as increasing encroachment of the Beijing mainland Chinese government on Hong Kong and this decreasing of autonomy and decreasing of civil liberties that this territory is supposed to have. And this escalated this year to, um, as you said, the United States declaring that Hong Kong is not autonomous anymore. But we haven't seen yet uh, Hong Kong losing these special trade preferences and other special preferences that it has under uh, American law. So the Trump administration hasn't yet gone that far. And what you see as well is for the passing of the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, for example, 
this was not an, an initiative of the, the president, but more of Congress. So while uh, Congress was forming this law, building support for it, the Trump administration was constantly refusing to commit. And um, also with the Hong Kong issue as a whole, saying that Xi Jinping was his best friend and he trusted that he would resolve the conflict peacefully, but refusing to provide support to the democracy movement in Hong Kong. The coronavirus outbreak hit both China and the United States as this dispute over Hong Kong was unfolding. So how did the arrival of coronavirus affect the way the administration talked about and dealt with China over the previous year? So in the beginning of the, the outbreak of the coronavirus, it was quite a nice uh, political gain for Trump, because then he could say, oh, look at how this coronavirus is developing within China. Um, shifting the blame to China, making China this very easy scapegoat. But now that the coronavirus has reached the United States and that the United States is actually uh, seeing the most infections, China is really being used as this narrative scapegoat to kind of shift away the blame from the American government to the Chinese government. And what you see in uh, the rhetoric is that you see a clash of very strong American rhetoric on the one hand and very strong Chinese narratives, on the other hand, uh, kind of propagating how well they've managed to contain the pandemic now within their own country, uh, in which a lot of areas can just go on kind of almost normally uh, with their normal lives. Uh, and using this as a way to say, look, this is why our system of government is way more efficient than the Trump administration in maintaining these kind of pandemics, because you can see how inefficient the Trump administration has been handling the coronavirus pandemic. Okay, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about how the domestic political conversation about China and America has been changing. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. Do you think it's true that we've seen a split between Congress and the administration? And if so, what do you think that's based on? Well, what you see is that there is an increasing uh, bipartisan support within Congress for stronger and tougher China policies. So in that way, um, Trump's harsher line against China is being supported. But you do see differences in prioritization. Um, and especially regarding human rights, you see that the Trump administration, well, Trump himself personally, doesn't care much for human rights and is very reluctant to use this uh, in his relations with other countries because he sees that it could damage other, uh, other aspects of the relationship. For example, with Hong Kong, with China, you could see that he was very reluctant to pass this Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act because he was hoping to first um, make a trade deal under the trade war. So he was using Hong Kong as this pawn, as this uh, uh, football caught in between the game of trade relations with Xi Jinping. So in that you do see a divergence between congressional priorities and priorities of the administration. Right. And this raises for me an interesting point about the ways in which the domestic politics of China policy have been distorted by the fact we have a Republican president right now. So the Republican Party is the one which is more hawkish on China. It's the party which always likes to use national security to attack its opponents more. 
And it seems to me that if we had a democratic president right now, there would actually be a lot more pressure coming on that president from domestic political actors in the US to take a much harsher line towards Beijing. You know, Republican senators at the end of the day don't want to make their own president look weak, but they're very happy to attack a democratic president for being weak. And this potentially creates a lot of pressure in a future democratic administration that could actually push the US towards harsher policies towards China. And I think there will also be a lot of pressure for um, any future democratic administration to stop compartmentalizing trade so much from other aspects of the relationship. And this could really lead to a broader deterioration in that relationship, I think. So I wonder if you expect a harder line from a Biden administration, if indeed we do see a Biden administration in a few months. I think a lot of people have been hoping for a kind of a reset of US-China relations, but the relationship has deteriorated so far that it's impossible to kind of go back to before Trump, if we can say it like that. So I don't think we'll see um, a major change in how the US and China are engaging with each other. Um, relationships will still be bad, but under Biden, there will be a different approach towards how to engage China. I think more focused on uh, engaging allies in the region as well. And if, um, so uh, imagine that, that we have a Biden administration or, or really just, you know, any hypothetical administration, maybe Trump will have a, a magic personality change between now and a second administration. And if, if that future administration wanted to increase pressure on China to try to change its behavior, particularly towards Hong Kong, what kind of steps could we see the administration take? Well, one important step I think it should take is to reopen diplomatic channels, because right now um, most of the channels are closed under this trade war. So it's impossible to negotiate behind the scenes in which actually there can be a lot of room for negotiation and for um, compromise, because for their domestic audiences, uh, both the US government and especially the Chinese government have to position themselves as winning in this competition when it's really not a zero sum game. Uh, despite Trump um, framing it as such. And another way in which the Trump administration or any administration could put a lot of pressure on China is by um, attacking its legitimacy as at home. And this is quite a difficult thing to do. Um, but one of the ways in which uh, the CCP has built its legitimacy is by providing economic growth to its population. And in recent years, we've already seen a decline in economic growth as it was in the 1990s, in the early 2000s, um, which is a natural development. Um, but we can see, for example, the Trump administration is really trying to damage the Chinese economy um, to also weaken CCP legitimacy. The difficult thing about this is that it's very uh, almost impossible to harm the Chinese economy while not harming your own economy because the global economy is now so interdependent that it's kind of impossible to decouple one from the other. The strongest lever that the US would have is um, Hong Kong's status as international financial center and international trade center, because it's one of the uh, points in the economy in which a lot of money flows in and out of China, in which a lot of business is being done, as a lot of Western companies choose not to base themselves within China, but in Hong Kong, which has these more Western trade practices. So one of the ways in which uh, there could be put pressure on is by trying to reduce and remove this status as international financial center. But again, the problem here is that there are a lot of American companies here as well that benefit from this status. So 
her trying to remove this status and trying to end this special position would also hurt the American economy itself. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, the the US-China economic relationship has been invested with so many great geopolitical hopes over the years. And the latest of those hopes has been that, you know, basically this makes conflict between the two countries, if not impossible, very difficult to imagine because, of course, it would be so economically ruinous to both the US and China to engage in conflict. But you know, what, one of the, from this perspective, one of kind of the worrying things that, that we've seen come out of the Trump administration and we sort of hear increasingly in, in China discourse over the last few years is this talk of decoupling the US economy from China. So how far has this process gone? And is it actually possible to imagine that it would go far enough that the, um, the risk of great economic damage to both countries in the event of a conflict would be reduced? So what you see is the United States trying to harm or change supply chains in uh, the crucial industries, for example, the semiconductor industry, high-tech industries, biomedical industries. The Trump administration has been trying to um, shift these supply chains away from China, for example, by putting a ban on Huawei technology, um, so that they cannot get their parts anymore and kind of stop this rise in technological uh, prowess that the Chinese uh, economy has. Um, the issue with decoupling, decoupling is that it's quite costly for a lot of companies to shift their entire supply chain, especially uh, under this uh, atmosphere of uncertainty that's been created by US, US government policy. So a lot of uh, companies themselves are very unwilling to shift their entire supply chain away from China because it's it is quite a big market and it is an important part of their of their business operations. Um, and you see that in trying to uh, decouple economically in these uh, areas, that the Chinese government is already seeing this shift happening and is uh, pursuing its own policy to kind of safeguard against the possibility that this could happen by building up its own capabilities. So you see uh, that it's actually not working in favor of the Trump administration or the United States economy, in that China is choosing now to focus more on internal supply chains and building up this domestic capabilities to become stronger on its own. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Chinese domestic politics and human rights. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. When Xi Jinping came to power eight years ago, a lot of Western analysts hoped that he was going to bring about a transformation in China's economy away from an export-led growth model and towards one based on domestic consumption. And the hope here was basically that as the Chinese middle class got richer, they consumed more of their own country's products, labor costs would rise, and China would export much less to the West. And this in turn would reduce these huge trade imbalances with the US, which Trump has talked about so much and which have been an issue in the US-China relationship for 10 or 15 years now. 
So has Xi, in fact, been implementing policies to move the Chinese economy in this direction, away from its reliance on trade and towards domestic consumption? Exactly. So you see a lot of his policies are focused on building these domestic capabilities. Um, for example, what you can see in the whole 5G debate is Huawei as a company becoming a national champion and receiving quite a lot of support from the Chinese government to become this national champion and to increase its, uh, its markets abroad. Um, and within the domestic economy, there's, there have been a lot of reforms that have been implemented to open the Chinese economy, to become more self-reliant. Um, what you see in the Chinese economy is there is a quite a large role of state-owned enterprises, and they are left over of the, the fully communist uh, period of the economy, um, when there were these big state companies that received a lot of support from the state. Um, and now the Chinese government is trying to decrease inefficiencies within these companies, because they have become very reliant on government support and how they function. And of course, this is not this is not uh, in line with market regulations, or um, they will also not be able to survive on their own without government support. So the Chinese government has been really trying to push these companies to become more self-reliant, to decrease inefficiencies. But what you see within the Chinese domestic market is that there's also a lot of competing uh, interests, and these reforms are really met with a lot of resistance from the inside as well. Right. And this has always been my objection when people try to hold up the Chinese economic model as somehow superior to the Western model. There's a real tendency to downplay its limits, I think. And one of these is its reliance on generating growth from huge infusions of capital from state-run banks and, and pumping this capital into inefficient state-run companies. And you end up with a lot of essentially zombie companies which are only kept animated by these capital injections. But at the same time, the owners and the operators of these businesses have a huge amount of political power because they intersect with the Communist Party elite, and that makes economic reform difficult. So has Xi tried to overcome these barriers to reform by reducing the power of domestic interest groups who stand in the way of it? So one of the ways in which Xi Jinping as a president has, has been trying to overcome this problem is by, quite in the beginning of his term, starting this anti-corruption campaign in which he really rooted out a lot of the, the older corruptive practices um, within the Chinese government. So it was quite well received within the Chinese population. But of course, this was also used to remove his political enemies and to consolidate more power for himself. Another way in which he's been trying to do this is by um, increasing his ties with the People's Liberation Army, which is a, kind of a separate branch from the government and which Xi Jinping has now made sure to be directly in control of, to kind of have this alliance between him and the People's Liberation Army. Um, so in building these links and removing old corruptive uh, people in power, Xi Jinping has really been centralizing uh, power to himself. And is there a sense in which this more aggressive foreign policy that we've seen from China in recent years has somehow been an outgrowth of Xi Jinping's need to maintain his standing with these hardline domestic interest groups? So if we focus on uh, Xi's priorities, the most important thing for the, the CCP is internal domestic stability. And relations with the rest of the world are only secondary to pursuing this line of of course, um, maintaining its own legitimacy as a party and maintaining support within 
the Chinese population for its its rule. Uh, there's not an official democracy, of course, but support still matters um, to get reforms through. Um, now, what you see with Hong Kong, for example, as specific instance, um, here the Chinese government already has this legitimate rule over the territory. Uh, Hong Kong in 2047 will not have this autonomous status anymore, and that is enshrined in the law, uh, also within the United Nations. Um, now, what you see is that because U.S.-China relations have deteriorated so far already that the Chinese government is not as afraid as it was of repercussions to its actions in Hong Kong, because there's already been so much going down in the, in the trade relationship. And another way in which uh, Xi Jinping and the Beijing sees these room for maneuverment is that uh, it's very difficult for the rest of the world to launch this coalition or to do anything to stop them, really. Uh, for example, you saw the whole debate about the national security law uh, in the UN Human Rights Council. Uh, there were, was a lot of opposition from within the European Union, for example, trying to build this coalition to make a strong statement against the national security law for um, reducing uh, Hong Kong liberties and reducing Hong Kong autonomies. And then you saw that the opposition, uh, those opposing the national security law, managed to get, I think, 27, 28 partners to sign a statement. The Chinese government, of course, had also been busy making its own alliance, and it actually managed to get 53 countries to sign in support of this national security law. So because there is there isn't this coalition against human rights violations in Hong Kong, it's, it's quite easy for the, the Chinese government to do as it wishes there. Yeah, and human rights is another issue that I wanted us to talk about. So the past three decades have really seen a declining role for human rights in shaping US policy towards China. And that decline has basically tracked the rise of economic concerns as the main influence. So this started way back in the 90s when Bill Clinton initially came into office promising that he's going to link a favorable trade policy towards China with human rights. But then he backs off under pressure from the business community. And this downplaying of human rights has really come under the spotlight recently, given the situation in Xinjiang and the plight of its Uyghur minority, which Be Beijing is trying to suppress and forcibly integrate into the Han majority in the country. So can you tell us a bit about what's happening there and how the Trump administration has responded? There has been actually a lot of discrimination against Uyghur minority for years already. Um, and this has led to some incidents uh, of what the Chinese government calls terrorism. It's quite difficult to actually see what happened, but we saw a lot of attacks on the general population in those provinces, uh, probably from the Uyghur minority in protest of these measures to kind of suppress them. And then now we've seen that probably since 2014, the Chinese government has actually started building re-education camps which it calls re-education camps, but they're really uh, camps in which Uyghur minorities are forcefully um, brought to uh, with a lot of methods to kind of try and reintegrate them into this Han majority. For example, they're being forced not to practice their religion. Uh, they're being forced to shave up their beards, uh, all ways in which this minority is being suppressed. So the U.S. government's reaction to this 
has also come mainly from Congress and not from the Trump administration, at least not from President Trump himself, because this is another issue in which he's actually rather not touch upon. But of course, it's such a big issue that his government is forced to response, uh, respond. So in 2020, you saw this Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act that was being signed, um, in which the US is now allowed to sanction officials that are complicit in this, in these re-education camps or detention camps, as a lot of people refer to them. Uh, and it also cautions U.S. companies to kind of ensure in their supply in their supply chains that there is no sign of forced labor, labor, because a lot of these camps have been accused of uh, forcing the people that live there to provide labor for the Chinese government. And again, this is very difficult to. Uh, to prove, but there's been a lot of reports that this is actually happening. Um, now, while we have this policy act on the one hand, uh, Trump actually chose not to have a signing ceremony or to really publicize this policy act. Well, for previous acts, he's been quite uh, happy to have a signing ceremony, to have a lot of pictures and everything. And on the same day that this act was being signed, uh, ex-National Security Advisor John Bolton actually came out with the accusation that Trump told Xi to go ahead with these camps in secret. And of course, the US government hasn't really replied to these allegations, but I think it says enough about the government that you're not exactly sure if this is true or not. Yeah, you know, and I have no difficulty believing that that is true. And it's really remarkable, you know, and especially in the context of, of the fact that the American public actually seemed to really be focused on this issue of human rights in China. So there was an, a, a poll that, that really blew me away from Pew in July of this year, which showed that 73% of Americans thought that the US should prioritize human rights and its relationship with China over economic relations. Now, that that surprises me for 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 a few reasons, and it, it also kind of suggests to me that that perhaps a great number of people in the American public don't realize the extent to which the American economy is intertwined with with China, because you know I don't actually believe, unfortunately, that they would maintain that stance if if they understood the potential economic cost that could come to the U.S. of a, of a serious confrontation with China, but. I wondered if, if you had any thoughts on how we might see the issue of human rights kind of develop as an influence on America's China policy in the future, given this overwhelming public support, it seems to, to see it play a bigger role. Well, if we see another uh, Trump administration after 2020, for the Trump administration, human rights has only been used when it's convenient uh, for Trump especially. Uh, as we established, he, human rights are not a priority of his. It's, it's economic uh, relations and trade, yeah. everything other than yeah, human rights. Human rights aren't even his priority at home, so they're definitely not abroad, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And you saw in 2018, the United States even withdrawing from the UN Human Rights Council. So we're withdrawing from these multilateral institutes in which, in which to protect human rights. Um, so under him, I don't see a necessary... Uh, prioritization of human rights. I think, as we've seen for the past few years, it's only going to be used when it's convenient for the Trump administration. For example, um, now with uh, the Xinjiang narrative, it's convenient for the Trump administration to use this narrative 
as proof of, oh, the, the Communist Party is bad and it's suppressing its own people. But I don't see the Trump, President Trump, at least himself, really strongly pursuing human rights in any more meaningful way. Well, with this, as with so many things, it all rides on the outcome of that election, which is under a month from now. But thanks so much, Jaja, for joining us. That's all we have time for today. Um, it's been a great conversation, and we really hope to have you back in the future to discuss these issues and, and others that may arise in the US-China relationship. Yeah, thanks for the great conversation. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Giles Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.